0: My name's Liz Hill, I'm a member of Language and Literacy in Young People, a research group here at Curtin University, and I'm with Robert Wells, another member of the group, and we'll be chatting about Robert's research today. Robert, can you start off with just a brief uh, introduction about yourself and your work?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So, I am a a PhD student here at Curtin University, um, and I am part of the Language and Literacy in Young People uh, research group. Uh, My project is a qualitative project looking at uh, how families access services, and I also work uh, during the week at a specialist uh, Department of Education setting, Um, and I work uh, mainly in a consultative role with teachers, but also with children with developmental language disorder.
0: Nice, it's really great that you have sort of a finger in many pies there, research, clinical work with clients, and then also um, work with teachers as well, so that's fantastic um so next of all you know as PhD students we're asked to do this quite often can you uh, give me a bit of an elevator pitch about your research can you describe it for us
1: yeah sure. sure um so I know that there's lots of fantastic things that are speech that speech pathologists are doing in order to support children with uh, mm-hmm. speech language and communication needs And effectively, I wanted to um, support families and children with those needs to get into the services that would support them. Um, So I wanted to look at what might facilitate access and what what might become a barrier to them accessing those services. So in my project, I'm interviewing caregivers about their access um, for their children to those services, as well as um, speech pathologists about their perspectives and experiences of providing those services.
0: Wonderful, I mean, I can't speak for, for parents and for clients, but I can think I can speak for clinicians about how um, amazing this research will be, such a practical um, um, yeah, application of your research, which is fantastic. So how Hopefully, does it fit, yeah. <laughs> how does that, if we take a sort of a step back, how does your research fit within the broader literature that currently exists around service access and service delivery?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there is existing research around um, individual difficulties in accessing services, and there are some um, facilitators of access mentioned sometimes directly, but usually indirectly within those research projects mm. and within those journal articles. Um, but there isn't really a lot of research at that broader level, looking at the overarching um, an overarching model that might incorporate all of those different barriers and facilitators. Sure. Um, also, a lot of this research considers. Um, key stakeholders, but considers them separately. So a number of projects, or usually the projects in this space will either consider the perspectives and experiences of caregivers, or the perspectives and um, experiences of clinicians. And very few studies have looked at both. So I'm sort of seeking to address those gaps by looking looking at... Um, both perspectives and experiences of caregivers and clinicians in the same project and analysing them together, but also then using that analysis to create a more broad level uh, model that will support mm. our understanding more generally.
0: Nice. And it makes so much sense to analyse those together and, and not as separate entities, given that you know clinical practice and the therapeutic alliance involve so many different parties and, and that impacts on the success and, and duration of intervention, which is really interesting. So. Clearly, you know, you're saying you're developing this model and there's such a clear practical application with of your research across sectors, you know, not even just speech pathology, but, you know, more broadly. What's next for your research then? Where do you see it going?
1: Um, that's a really big question, and probably not one that I can answer very specifically um, right now.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. Um,
1: my no, that's fine. My my project uses a constructivist grounded theory methodology, right. and within that um, focus is on creating or generating a theory based on the data collected within the in-depth interviews. Yeah. Um, and so, as I come to um, I progress in my, um, my research and come more towards the conclusion of it. I'll have a uh, theory that we'll be able to use to structure future research questions.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but at the moment, we haven't got, um, you know, we're still working towards developing that theory. But yeah. hopefully towards the end, we'll have a, a stronger theory that will help guide um, myself and other researchers to um, test and, and try that, that model mm. and find out a little bit more about the area.
0: And I think, you know, your your PhD is so large, it makes sense that it's not, you know, you're not going to have all the answers straight away with a clear direction of what to next. It's really this massive process. And I think it's really incredible that you're you're doing that and you're tackling that. So I'm sure, you know, I'm from all the chats we've had over the years, I'm clearly very interested in your research. But for, for other stakeholders, um, you know, clients and or you know, clinicians, where can we find out more about your research specifically? How would we get access to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you said at the beginning, I'm part of the Language and Literacy in Young People research group. So you can go to our website, which is language and literacy in young people, yep. all one word, dot com. Um, we also have a project specific website, which is ISPA for C, which is I S P A for the numeral for C dot com. Um, and that has all of the project specific information. Um, you can also find the project on Facebook as Ispar for C. Um, and you can find me on Facebook or Instagram as Robert P Wells SP. Um, but I do spend more of my time clinically on Twitter as, yeah. um, and hope. So there's, there'll be some more outcomes um, for the project that we can be posting very soon.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. And you're so well connected. So a lot of different ways that we can get in touch with you and your research, which is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me this afternoon, um, Robert, about your research. It's been It's been great.
1: Thank you very much, Liz. Thank
0: you. Bye.
1: My name is Robert Wells. And I'm here today with Liz Hill, who's going to talk to Hi, us. Hi, Robert. Probably. Liz, did you want to introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, no worries. So uh, my name is uh, Liz Hill. I'm a current PhD candidate at Curtin University and a speech pathologist. So I've just submitted my PhD, but I've also, or I also work clinically at a private practice with adolescents with language and literacy difficulties.
1: Great, okay, so it sounds really good. You've got um, some clinical experiences and you're also working, you're um, also doing your PhD.
0: Yeah, um, exactly right.
1: So thinking now about your research, can you give me your elevator um, elevator pitch, describing your research as best you can?
0: Yeah, don't worry. So after a brain injury, adolescents tend to have difficulties with discourse level language skills. So that's things like telling a story or giving an opinion on your favourite film or favourite sport. Mm-hmm. Now, we believe that these difficulties are related to deficits in cognitive functions, things like attention, memory, and executive function. And we also believe that these difficulties attribute to poor psychosocial outcomes. So what I mean by that is emotional difficulties are reduced academic success, reduced vocational success Mm post-injury. So as clinicians, so as speech pathologists, we're really encouraged to consider the links between discourse deficits, um, so things like difficulty story, uh, telling a story and cognitive impairments and those psychosocial difficulties when planning our assessment and intervention. But at the moment, our understanding of those links between cognition, communication, and psychosocial outcomes are really poorly, is really poor, so they're poorly understood. So that's what my PhD set out to to find, looking at the cognitive and psychosocial factors that are linked to discourse skills in teenagers with and without an acquired brain injury.
1: Hmm. That's great. Sounds like really impactful research. So thinking about that, what um, impact or contribution has your research made to uh, clinical practice?
0: Yeah, so... um, Generally, it's contributed um, a foundation or an emerging understanding of the cognitive and psychosocial factors, things like attention, memory, and the psychosocial factors like emotional well-being and daily participation that are related to discourse skills, so things like storytelling. But one of the, I guess, the most exciting and practical clinical implications of the research has been the Curtin University Discourse Protocol, so that's an assessment tool that my supervisors and I developed to address the gap, the, gap or the current gap in our tools to assess adolescent discourse. And then through that, we've also developed a, quite a large set of normative data for adolescent discourse, which can be used by clinicians not only working with um, adolescents with an acquired brain injury, but across clinical populations, so that's really exciting.
1: That's fantastic. It sounds like that you've made quite a significant contribution to clinical practice.
0: Thank you. I like to think so. <laughs>
1: Um, So now thinking more about the literature and and, um, in terms of the broader landscape of literature, um, how does your research fit in with that?
0: So i probably repeat myself a little bit here, I think. Um, but the adolescent discourse literature is really emerging at the moment. And so, but because it's emerging, there are quite a few gaps that need to be filled. And so I like to think, or the, uh, the research I did for my PhD, addresses quite a few of those gaps. So like I said, the normative data, so understanding what is expected of adolescent discourse. So in storytelling or giving an opinion um, in non-clinical populations. So how can we compare adolescents who have difficulties Uh, in discourse to to nothing. So developing that normative data, as well as addressing the gap that exists in um, tools to assess adolescent discourse. So what we see in the current literature is that although there is an increasing level of consistency, it tends to be that the tasks that are used to assess adolescent discourse, the outcome measurements that are used to analyse language tend to vary quite widely. Mm. So by constructing this discourse assessment protocol where one step... um, Toward establishing more consistency in adolescent discourse research, which is really nice.
1: That's awesome. So, what's next? Where can the, this research take us in the future?
0: So, first of all, I think there needs to be an ongoing um, ongoing research in the area of adolescent brain injury and discourse. You know, that's still very much emerging. So, looking at the kinds of difficulties that adolescents with brain injury have in the area of discourse. What are the mechanisms behind those? So what are the cognitive deficits that attribute to those discourse difficulties? And what are the long-term impacts um, on daily well-being and psychosocial health? So I think you know, later on down the track, it'll be really nice to see some longitudinal research looking at the link between discourse impairments, academic outcomes and emotional outcomes. So I think that's one thing that, that really needs to be done. Um, but in terms of adolescent discourse more generally, there's still a lot more to go. You know, I'd really like to continue to validate the, the discourse protocol in typically developing populations but also in clinical populations. So really start to build up a nice set of evidence supporting that tool. But then also more specifically things like modalities. So we know that adolescents don't only produce discourse orally. So a lot of the time when teenagers are producing discourse it's in written form for school, so in the classroom. So looking at differences between oral and written discourse would be really interesting. Um, And, yeah, I think that would be really the next step for me, personally, anyway.
1: (laughs) That sounds really interesting. Um, Yeah. So, if we want to find out more, where can we go?
0: So, I'm really grateful to be part of a research group at Curtin University called Language and Literacy in Young People. So, we have a website that is, no surprise, languageandliteracyinyoungpeople.com. Uh, And all the members of our research group have our publications and any resources on there and the discourse protocol and the publications that have come out of my PhD are available through that website as well. Um, And then I'm also on Twitter at Liz Hill SP. If you'd like to uh, follow me there, I'm there quite a lot of the time.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Liz. Thanks for listening to Reflections. If you'd like to find out more about our work and for links to other podcast episodes, visit languageandliteracyinyoungpeople.com.